Welcome to the HC Insider Podcast, a podcast dedicated to the commodities sector and the people within it. I'm your host, Paul Chapman. Today we're talking renewable diesel. Renewable diesel is being heralded as one of the major new fuels that can combat climate change. Not only does it use sustainable feedstocks for its creation, it also produces less greenhouse gases and particulate emissions, but crucially, it can replace, without any change in the technology, petroleum diesel. As a result, demand is expected to explode over the next decade in Europe, Asia, and North America, and there's huge policy support. However, there are also challenges. The feedstocks compete with the human and animal nutrition supply chains, driving up prices, also promotes more land under cultivation with challenging crops like palm oil, particularly in Asia. And overall, there's a question whether the supply of the feedstocks can meet the demand for renewable diesel. Joining us to discuss is J.W. Hackett. J.W. is a commercial development and environmental and renewable fuels expert. He's worked for the EPA. He's also been on the U.S. Senate Committee on Environment and Public Works and worked with the Renewable Energy Group. J.W., thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So today we're talking renewable diesel, which is very much in the press at the moment. You're seeing huge run-ups in the feedstocks for it. Before we sort of dig into the the technology and some of the history and the policy behind it, and then some of the challenges and opportunities about the market in renewable diesel, what is it and why is it it causing such excitement and how is it different to biodiesel? So renewable diesel is is a replacement for, for diesel fuel. It's interchangeable with with diesel and meets the same specifications in, in the U.S. and Europe, just like petroleum diesel does. So ASTM D975 in the U.S. and EN590 in Europe. Biodiesel, on the other hand, comes from a very different process, transesterification, that produces a, a different molecule and in some applications has blend limitations, whereas renewable diesel does not. And the key thing about renewable diesel, of course, is that not only is it just like petroleum diesel, but comes it comes from sustainable sources and feedstocks, not i.e. not fossil carbon feedstocks. It itself also burns cleaner, produces less emissions, less greenhouse gas emissions, as well as other particulates. So it's seen very much as this kind of complete renewable fuel compared to, as you mentioned, biodiesel or, or ethanol blends and so forth. Am I on the right track there? There are some very attractive properties and um, qualities of renewable diesel that have sparked quite a bit of interest. It's a biofuels market generally is a very diverse, uh, diverse place. And uh, certainly a lot, of these, a lot of these other fuels have, have a lot of other benefits in, um, from a business perspective or from an emissions perspective. Biodiesel, for example, is a little bit less energy intensive in its production. So the emissions tend to be, uh, the emissions reductions tend to be a bit better than, than renewable diesel. But generally, renewable diesel is a very versatile fuel that um, has attracted a lot of interest and for good cause. Yeah, and we're seeing growing demand, growing trading opportunities, both of the fuel itself as well as the feedstock. But there are some challenges around policy support as well as actually meeting the demand for production from a feedstock standpoint. Before we dig into that, can you just talk a little bit about the genesis of renewable fuels or, and renewable diesel in particular as it relates to public policy, both here in North America as well as in Europe and, and elsewhere around the world? 
Biofuels typically have one or more of the following public policy drivers. Desire for value-added agriculture or anything that enhances the value of ag commodities, in other words, or and or jobs. Two, desire for energy security or diversifying um, the uh, sources of energy coming into or being used in the country. And finally, for environmental reasons to, to reduce emissions. So these three things came together in the U.S. to... And that resulted in the Renewable Fuel Standard Program, which requires transportation fuel sold in our country to contain minimum volumes of, of certain renewable fuels. One of those buckets has a requirement to blend X amount of biodiesel and or renewable diesel from standalone facilities into, into the market. Co-process renewable diesel can count in another one of the buckets advanced that can also then fill other buckets. So it's it's a great fuel that has been has made a pretty big impact on on this program. It's something that's going to continue to grow or or has grown quite a bit going from 9 billion gallons in 2008 to to 36 billion gallons in 2022. Some of that volume has been waived due to some market issues, but you've seen a tremendous amount of growth here. Next year, EPA is going to have Quite a bit of uh, discretion on how to manage the program, and, and quite frankly, I don't envy uh, envy any of them for for the decisions that they're going to have to make. We can get into the politics later, but um, the other big driver is the California Low Carbon Fuel Standard, or the California LCFS, and it originated at roughly the same time as as the RFS, and it requires oil refiners and fuel distributors to reduce the carbon intensity of their fuel, with a goal to reduce that CI by at least 20% by 2030. And this has been a huge driver of renewable diesel in the US. And it also has a couple of other really important impacts in the market. Some other states and Canadian provinces have copied California's approach toward their transportation fuel policy. So you've got the Oregon Clean Fuels Program, the British Columbia Low Carbon Fuel Standard, a transportation and climate initiative with, um, I believe uh, Massachusetts, Connecticut, Rhode Island, and DC have all opted in. And you got some others under discussion, for example, Washington State, New York, Colorado, Minnesota, Iowa, that um, it'll have a very big multiplier effect, uh, impact on on demand for, for these products going forward. And uh, you also have a national clean fuel standard being finalized later this year and going into effect in late 2022 in Canada for, a, uh, I think it's a 13% reduction in emissions by 2030. And then if you go across, across, um, up across the pond to Europe, you've got the Renewable Energy Directive, or RED, which was updated, RED 2, which goes through 2030. And that program increases the, fo- the focus on advanced biofuels and sustainability with aviation and marine fuels having the ability to opt in and I think count 1.2 times their energy content. Just to get a better feel for, for how this works, think about Think about each individual member state having developed its own own little RFS. So the rules get very complicated and eligibility really depends on a combination of a couple of things. The feedstock being utilized, the process technology, and the end molecule. And not everything's going to qualify for every program. Uh, so it creates quite a accounting and um, compliance challenge. Absolutely. And I think, 
you know, you stated that one of some of the challenges there, and we'll come on to, I guess, each of those three aspects. Just before we move on, you did mention the sustainable aviation fuel, or wanted to talk about that as it relates to Scandinavia, because I think that gives us an idea of the coming scale of demand that's broadcast through various of these programs. On the sustainable aviation fuel front, two countries already have introduced usage requirements. Sweden for 0.8% in 2021, which, which increases to 27% in 2030. And Norway for half a percent uh, last year, increasing to 30% in, in 2030. Uh, this, is, this is really interesting, uh, interesting development. Um, a lot of uh, interest groups and airlines have had a, quite a bit of interest in SAF. Uh, you can blend renewable diesel into jet fuel at, at certain levels. Not much SAF has been made relative to renewable diesel uh, just because, because of the incentives that were out there. Renewable diesel was getting excellent values for on-road applications, and it, it costs less to produce than, than, uh, than jet fuel. But um, you might see a pretty big transition going forward um, on this front uh, in, in additional incentives to put this sort of product in the market. I think airlines for America, one of the primary trade associations for the aviation sector, they announced a plan last month to try to get at least 2 billion plus gallons into the U.S. market by 2030. And then, of course, you've got the um, International Civil Aviation Organization with with their efforts to keep emissions from rising. Uh, so th- this is an area that I'd, that I'd keep an eye on for, for opportunities. So you've got these a patchwork at the moment of policies that are promoting the use of renewable diesel in particular, but alongside other renewable fuels, but and, you know, these substantial future ramp-ups, you just look at that, right, 0.8% to 27% in Sweden over the next decade of using sustainable aviation fuel. That's a, a big source of potential demand. And I think it's worth reiterating that the key thing about renewable diesel compared to biodiesel and even you know ethanol blends is that renewable diesel is essentially chemically just petroleum diesel. And therefore, it's much easier to blend, make these switches, whereas biodiesel, as I understand it, it's using oxygenation and you've got issues with freezing. It needs to be blended with petroleum diesel. So it really kind of unlocks a huge amount of opportunity. You mentioned at the very start that it's it meets sort of the current US and European requirements uh, for petroleum diesel. Just moving on to, I guess, digging very quickly into that technology piece, the technology here is is this hydro treating, right? Is this relatively recent development in taking these oils and greases, the, the fogs that you mentioned, and turning them into renewable diesel. Can you just quickly, a couple of words on that, how it's done? I think the market is dominated by by Neste at the moment from their plants in, I think it's in um, in Scandinavia, in, in the Netherlands, and in Singapore. It's We're still at a, quite a small production uh, volume, right? In all fairness to biodiesel, it has some advantages that renewable diesel doesn't have. It's less energy intense, so the emissions can be lower, and and there's been an awful lot of work increasing the specifications for it. But you're you're absolutely right; it doesn't have the potential to go into some of those growing fields where where you're going to need to decarbonize, and there aren't very many good solutions like like aviation. On uh, on the technology front, basic technologies this. Seems really new, but a lot of this stuff's been around for a while. Hydro treating, same type of technology as petroleum refining that involves heat, pressure, and hydrogen. Pyrolysis is 
is also utilized where you heat up organic material in the absence of oxygen to change its chemical composition, gasification as well to create a syngas that is then updated via Fischer-Tropsch uh, process into a synthetic fuel. And there are some other folks out there that are making renewable diesel or, or looking to make other renewable hydrocarbons via miscellaneous biochemical and, and thermal. So just from an orientation standpoint, how big is production right now and, and how much is that dominated by the likes of Nesty? Well, Nesty is an extraordinarily large, large producer of renewable diesel. And they have some very large facilities in Europe and in Singapore. In the U.S., you, you have Renewable Energy Group, of course. Uh, you also have World Energy, which has a um, facility out in Southern California that that I believe is supplying sustainable aviation fuel to some um, airlines at uh, LAX. And uh, Marathon Petroleum has um, recently come on with a very, very large plant. Uh, I believe it's up in North Dakota to supply the market. And looking forward, it's huge expansions underway. I've seen five plus billion gallons of capacity under construction or announced for, for, for the next five to 10 years. And it's it's kind of hard to keep up with all the project news and announcements. So I'm guessing these numbers are probably outdated or, or will be soon. Diamond Green uh, down in Louisiana is also a, uh, a very, very large producer of, of renewable diesel. Elsewhere, there are several projects announced in Canada and um, three times plus expansion in both the European Union and Asia. And uh, a pair of very large projects were announced in South America, one in Bolivia and the other in uh, Paraguay, which um, you just have this massive, massive interest in this space, which um, we'll see if all of it gets built, but uh, it's certainly going to be an interesting, interesting five, uh, five, 10 years in this space. Yeah. So and we're going to cover the, I guess we're going to move on to the feedstocks because that's really the story here and then talk about the market and the demand part. But that, that expected capacity build out is a reflection of the great interest and demand in the space. And, you know, I think you touched on it there is renewable diesel is this confluence of policies, yes, that support prices. You see that in California. It is obviously significantly more expensive than, than diesel itself at the moment. But it's also this solution for hard to abate sectors like aviation, you know, where we're a long way off electrification, you know, or even uh, hydrogen. Let's just spend a little moment on the feedstocks because ultimately the story of building out capacity is the story of securing the feedstocks. Can you just give us a quick overview of, of what all goes into creating this renewable diesel? So, so on the feedstock front, it's, it's complicated. There's a very large, diverse group of or set of feedstocks that can be used to to make renewable diesel, as a procurement professional in the past, kind of thought of ourselves as as um, fat oil and grease or fog bartenders. And you'd make a cocktail, feedstocks to to feed your plants and 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 supply your end users. But they they tend to fo- follow into a couple of different buckets. Rendered products. So I think of tallow from uh, tallow or bo- coming from bovines. Uh, choice white grease, which is pork fat, poultry fat used cooking oil, food pe- preparation operations, yellow grease, which, which has a pretty broad definition or is used very broadly for mixed fats and, and veg oils, and um, fish oil and, and, and things like brown grease or trap grease, which are lipids found in grease traps at food service operations, septic systems, and wastewater treatment facilities, which, um, which is a very, very tough to process. 
So these rendered products, these are either waste products, in straight-up waste products, or they're low-value secondary products from other processes, right, which is kind of part of what makes all that group really attractive. And you do have, you know, companies, organizations out there collecting waste cooking oil and, and, and you know, you've suddenly seen a ramp up. We've, you know, it's fair to say that across this feedstocks for all of the biodiesel, we've seen a big increase in prices over the last year. And, you know, you see the likes of Darling Ingredients, you know, organizations that render chickens, which is sort of a, a, a euphemism for what actually goes on. All these fats are typically waste products, you know, that have, which is kind of some of the attraction about them going into a renewable fuel is that, you know, otherwise they're just sluice down drains and so forth. That's right. They're generally thought of as waste products, but not everybody agrees with that characterization. There are some other markets for these products, notably oleochemical feedlots uh, have um, purchased a lot of these products in technical tallow, uh, used cooking oil. So there are other applications for for these products that prospective renewable diesel producers or renewable diesel producers have to consider. Yeah. Then you've got, I guess, we're getting increasingly more sticky from a feedstocks perspective. I mean, in terms of uh, challenging You've got the vegetable oils, which is kind of where this issue that really is, I think, at the heart of this story of pushing food prices up, more land under cultivation. You've got the the soy, soybean oil. You've got the you know the various vegetable oils. You've got one of the the worst offenders, palm oil piece. Can you just cover that for us? Well, agriculture's made some great strides in in sustainability, and uh, I'd like to chat a little bit about regenerative agriculture as an opportunity going forward. But generally. Oil seeds have, have made up a, a huge chunk of the feedstock market historically for biomass-based diesel production, and it, it's really geared toward, toward local interest. And going back on the, on the feedstock commentary generally, typically for the, a lot of these programs, you have to have an appropriate feedstock, an appropriate processing technology, and an appropriate molecule. The eligibility for, for each, of those, each of those things tends to be geared toward local incentives or local stakeholders. So all these things that I'm describing, they don't necessarily work in every program. So if you're in Southeast Asia, palm oil, uh, it, palm oil will go into that market in a big way. And it, it has in Europe as well, but there's a little bit of a trend away from that. In the U.S., it's not, it's, not used, it, it's, it's not eligible for many parts of the Renewable Fuel Standard Program. It has some limited opportunities uh, for, for grandfathered facilities at, at the lowest value in total renewable fuel. So is that a, just to understand that, is that a, um, a function of policy? So, you know, you can't use palm oil to, and, and get this, meet the renewable fuel standards. And also, not every refinery can take the same feedstocks. That's correct. It's a complicated fact-based inquiry for each of those three things, the, the feedstock, the process technology, and the molecule. Which makes it quite a challenging bet, right? You know, for these refiners, you've got to... You've seen some fantastic successes out there with various organizations. You've got to make that bet on which type of refinery, which feedstock are you betting on, the region, as well as, you know, ensuring that 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 one's going to stay current in terms of policy support as well. It is. It's a tough space to be in, but you do have a lot of options out there. Uh, Going back to some of those public policy markets that I mentioned, and there's, if you can make something, there's, there's probably going to be a market for it somewhere. On the oilseed front, oilseed veg oil front, you you have a lot of different feedstocks that have been used. 
Palm Distillers Corn Oil and Distillers Sorghum Oil, which is a co-product from, from ethanol production, canola and rapeseed, sunflower, camelina, carinata, or um, I think uh, many people call it Ethiopian mustard, cottonseed, coconut oil, and, and, uh, and cover crops like pennycress, which are, which are used to improve soil health and water quality, et cetera, and um, slow erosion, and, and they bring other benefits to the land as well. Uh, and then there's a kind of a miscellaneous bucket of, of other feedstocks that, that refiners can use. For example, fatty acid distillates, which are byproducts from refining animal fats and newer uh, oil seeds. Uh, you have palm oil mill effluent and, and palm sludge oil, which are waste products from the, from the palm oil mill process generated from oil extraction, washing, and cleaning up processes. You've got palm oil recovered from spent, uh, spent bleached earth, which is a solid waste from a fine powder used in the bleaching process during palm oil refining. Tall oil is um, it's popular in Europe. Uh, it's a byproduct of the craft process of wood pulp manufacture and pulp and trees. There have been some attempts to make biofuel feedstocks from, from things like algae, uh, algal oil. It um, hasn't really taken off in a big way, but has um, potential down the line. There's uh, one producer that I know of, and, and there are probably some others, making a product called BioCrude, which is a pyrolysis oil from, from things like woody biomass that can be uh, co-processed with petroleum or, or used in a standalone facility um, or used directly for, for heating oil. And then um, there have been a couple of projects announced that are utilizing, utilizing trash and um, uh, waste plastics. To make their so it kind of runs the gamut there. You've got sort of solutions that could be really net beneficial on all fronts and others that, you know, as we've kind of alluded to, have these um, bring other environmental degradation with them. So you've got, so okay, so that, I think we've, we've got a good understanding of the, the feedstocks and some of the technology and, again, why, why this is on everyone's radar. You've hinted at this, or you talked about this increase in capacity and just looking at your notes here, you've got this actually what looks like a huge you mentioned five billion gallons of capacity under construction a huge run-up in in that production three times in european union another threefold expansion in asia can you just talk to us about the cost the price the market um, for renewable diesel on kind of uh, kind of the value proposition for refiners uh, or whatever you want to call it renewable diesel producers sell a, phys- a physical gallon of, of energy, a gallon of compliance or environmental attributes. So, for example, when you're, when you're selling your, your product, you get the energy value for it, but then you can either bundle it up with environmental attributes or incentives or, or bifurcate them and, and trade them separately. Uh, so, so, for example, under the Renewable Fuel Standard Program, if you're selling your fuel into the U.S., you can add the value of a, a RIN, um, and if you're going into California within the U.S., you can get the value of the um, low-carbon fuel standard as well. There are other parts of the country you can sell into, so if you're going to Oregon or you want to go into another state that has an incentive program, do what's you know some people refer to as stacking incentives. And really, it's it's the same net back, but you're you're just adding in the value of those stacked incentives to your revenue. To get a general idea of what what profitability might look like, people have used this thing called the, the hobo spread, which is um, heating oil, uh, heating oil, soybean oil, and it's been used to to gauge the profitability of biodiesel in the past and as a hedging tool. There have been some risk management challenges associated with with making and selling this product in the past. 
That's because of the environmental commodities associated with it. Attempts to develop RIN futures markets haven't or didn't didn't pan out in the past, but there seems to be a lot of new interest with uh, with growing volumes and market diversity for these products. Uh, so that's a so that looks hopeful, but it, but it's also a good question mark for um, some of the challenges ahead. Mm. Just going back to that hobo spread, can you give us any idea of how profitable this has been at the moment for these producers of the re- renewable diesel? That's a tough question. You can take a look at some of the publicly traded companies over the past um, five, 10 years and, and get an idea of, of what they've been able to do. Uh, you also have some tax incentives that have increased profitability. There's a, a blender's tax credit in the U.S., which um, has kind of had like an um, on and off switch. Some people have, have taken risk on, on whether it would come back or not. And it, it always has. And it's in, it's in place right now. But it's definitely a political risk. Yeah. And I think, as we kind of alluded to earlier on, you've seen an incredible success with Nesty and the likes of Green Plains. And a lot of it's kind of down to um, how they facilities they have, where they're located, and what feedstocks they have access to, right? Because, it, again, it comes back to that kind of bet on what technology you build. Um, around what feedstocks. One thing to note here is, though, that we have seen, I think, soybeans up 25% this year, soybean oil, sorry, is up 25% this year. You have seen a huge run-up in the cost of the feedstocks, as particularly in the likes of waste cooking oil, you've had this challenge of not only is there a run-up in prices, there's also been fewer restaurants as a result of COVID. So you've seen a huge increase in pricing there, as I understand it. Certainly, this is this is adding a lot of demand to the market. And it's going to be a fascinating space going forward. Typically, some of those refined veg oils or, or prized oil seeds will have traded at a, a premium to these waste, waste-based feedstocks. And I, I've heard people argue about this passionately, uh, that you know they point to Europe as an example. Well, Yuko has never traded above such and such. And I just don't think that's going to change going forward. And I've had others arguing that the, the environmental attributes associated with some of these waste feedstocks will eventually cause them to to perhaps trade at a premium. I don't I don't know what's going to happen there. Um, I've I saw one product um, palm oil recovered from spent spent bleached earth that was cleaned up and refined, selling out of Malaysia a while ago, and it, it traded at a slight premium to to palm oil, and that was based on the uh, environmental attributes. But I I definitely think that's an exception rather than the rule. Yeah, I think we I mean, we're certainly seeing a real huge demand in Europe and in the US or in North America in general for edible fuels traders. You know, I mean, this is sort of the world is starting to compete for these proteins. And we're going to come on to, I think this is, the, again, the, the challenge. You're competing with these proteins with the likes of animal nutrition, human nutrition, you know, and we have seen a big run up and, you know, and an increased demand in, in the opportunity in trading, not only trading renewable diesel itself and renewable fuels, but also trading the feedstocks. I want to move on to just nail the forward market opportunities. So you've got all of these companies making big bets on capacity. You've got trading groups looking to build out trading teams. We've kind of touched on the first aspect of renewable diesel, which because it is an equivalent to normal diesel, it's it can, at least for a period of time, decarbonize these sort of hard to hard to abate sectors, right? So you've mentioned aviation. What else are we seeing there? Aviation obviously has a lot of interest, and it also, I, I would keep an eye on the marine market. The International Maritime Organization has set a, had a goal for emissions reductions by 2050, and 
and uh, certainly these renewable distillates might be able to to play a big role in that going forward. I don't I don't know what that's going to look like, but it's a big market, and I uh, suspect it'll be difficult to decarbonize as well. And then you also continue to see opportunities in in heavy duty applications and heating oil. Some of the some of the states in northern New England may have uh, robust markets for for uh, renewable distillates uh, for their for, for home heating uh, purposes. But uh, you know there, there there are definitely some question marks. Uh, you know, will electrification and natural gas continue to replace home heating oil in the Northeast? And uh, on on the on road transportation front, see what happens with electric vehicles and and other alternatives like renewable natural gas, hydrogen, et cetera. But uh, I'd look to to aviation and marine, and and uh, they'll probably be um, a substantial market, a big market for heavy duty applications for um, for quite some time. Yeah, there's other things as well. You mentioned regenerative agriculture and the the um, there's sort of some added benefits there, and you've also got the whole chemicals industry. Let's move on to so you've got this great story. You've got this kind of fantastic fuel that ticks so many boxes from sustainable feedstocks through to compatibility with just any old diesel engine, through to it producing lower greenhouse gases, lower particulates. What and anyway, let's talk about why this potentially won't take off or why this is still a risky bet is probably the better way of saying it. First off, it really is about the feedstocks and it's not just prices are a function of supply. Is there the supply out there across all of those different potential sources to actually really meet the demand that would be needed to replace diesel to any significant amount from an environmental standpoint? That's the big question. And I don't think I've ever heard a great answer to it. Uh, If you take a look at how much feedstock demand is going to come on online in the U.S. Let's say the five billion gallons comes on five plus billion gallons comes online. So thinking about a, a hundred million gallon a year addition to the market, as maybe one, one or two, a couple of the projects, you know, each gallon of renewable diesel requires roughly seven plus pounds of, of feedstock. So you're talking about adding seven hundred million plus plus pounds of, of feedstock demand, or 300,000 plus metric tons of, of demand on, on an annualized basis, you have a, a huge, huge, huge addition to the demand side of the market going forward. You know, certainly, you know, you can get the feedstock, but the question is at what price will, will it be attractive enough to, to make money? Mm. And I think this is going to require, I guess, for lack of a better description, frenemies really coming together, rowing in the same direction. So, so getting new feedstocks approved for different regulatory programs, developing new ones like algal oil and increasing yields, and additional penetration for, for yuco and waste grease collection in emerging markets, and, and also continued innovation and improvements in pretreatment of previously uh, undesirable or, or really tough to use feedstocks like brown grease and trap grease uh, will, will be critical to growth in the future. The You mentioned, sort of, you know, let's say call it 300 thousands of feedstock being produced that's quite a significant percentage of the world's current food supply which i think is 1.5 billion metric tons so you're talking there whatever that is you know two percent growth in in the amount of food required to meet just that capacity coming online over the next let's call it decade or so is is that am i right with my maths there looking at the feedstock challenge ahead you're right. It's going to put huge additional demands 
on supply and demand for, for the fog complex. But the good thing, or the at least reason for optimism or hope in this space is that there are there's such a diversity of options to to pick from. There's there, there are going to be opportunities to to utilize things beyond beyond the traditional oil seeds and also collect um, lots of waste greases from emerging markets. So there there are a lot of opportunities ahead. But you're certainly right. It's it's going to put some there there are going to be a lot of growing pains in this space and and it's not clear that all of this production will get built. But there'll there'll certainly be um, a lot of changes over the next couple of years. Because there's, there's lots of other challenges associated with that, right? You've, not only do you have the environmental degradation through in, in intensive agriculture and all of the other issues there, you've also got, and I'm just looking at your own notes as well, you've got this disconnect where we, where we have kind of a very, at least in, 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 in Europe and North America, a very efficient supply chain attached to grown crops. But actually, for all of these waste feed stocks, just at the household level, it's you know this a is really distributed, but it also you know you don't have a mature industry to collect all of those waste fats and oils either, right? There's certainly, been a lot of entrepreneurial activity in this space. It's challenging. It's challenging abroad uh, in, in the past for places that that make a lot of or produce a lot of waste greases. There are um, weren't really strong food safety laws on the books, or if there if they were on the books, those laws weren't enforced. So there was a lot of black market competition for taking used cooking oil, maybe cleaning it up a bit, and then putting it back into the food supply chain, which which has some pretty serious consequences. I think um, if, if uh, listeners are interested, they can you know Google some of the things that have happened in China on um, what's called gutter oil. But it's it's a tough space, and you have a huge collection footprint. Uh, so it's not like the traditional agribusiness model or, you know, you're crushing crushing product and, and aggregating it in large volumes in one place. And then you've got fantastic logistics to to send it out to to customers. It's, you know, picking up bits and pieces here and there and, and bringing it to a central facility and cleaning it up and then and then getting it out. And it's it's also a bit of a, a disconnect on, on volume as well. Uh, and, and transportation modes. So a lot of the places some of these waste products are coming from, they may not have efficient supply chains set up so or, or sufficient volumes to aggregate aggregate them appropriately and, and send them off. So you might be getting product in tough-to-handle feedstock that have to be shipped over long distances. When they arrive at a facility, they, they'll probably need to be heated up for a while. Then you need to get rid of the bag. Um, and you have to have it in a large volume. They come in about 20, what, 20 to 22 metric tons a piece or about 6,000 gallons. So that's that's going to be a challenge, I think, for folks. But, you know, I've seen some some outfits, uh, you know, they have a you know, model to aggregate feedstock and tanks around the world and, and send it out. So I suspect there's probably going to be a lot of innovation in that space as well. I mean, again, it kind of the idea sounds fantastic. Kind of the the execution sounds a pretty carbon intensive. B, it's got a lot of other stakeholders and challenges around it as well, from a feedstock standpoint. The other challenge here is that fundamentally, at root at the moment, this is supported by policy as opposed to price. Right? This is it's only happening in you know, renewable diesel is taking over in California as a result of the low carbon fuel standards. It's not in Texas. Can you talk about what the political, it sounds positive from the, you know, what's, what's going on in Europe and in the US and the direction that we're taking, what sort of the, the political stakeholder 
lens out there and, and, and what are the challenges you see there for renewable diesel being a significant opportunity and market for the commodities world in, in general over the next decade? The tough thing about this space is that it is that it's biomass and in biomass politics been very challenging over the years. If I were to try to draw a, a stakeholder Venn diagram of everyone's position on combination of those things I mentioned earlier, feedstock, process technology, and molecule, it would look like one of Jackson Pollock's splatter paint works of art. <laughs> it's, it's all over the map. You have very, very different positions. There are things that people like about it, but they also don't like agri- uh, historical agribusiness practices or stuff that's good, um, or, or forestry sector issues. Uh, environmental NGOs have taken, taken issue with, with some of the practices in those industries in the past. It's a tough space. And there was a quote in a Politico article from um, a former deputy administrator at, at, um, at EPA during the Obama administration that, I, that I, I think applies really well. And he was talking about biomass power, but I think it also applies to, to biofuels as well. And he said, I'd say the people who are very enthusiastic should temper their enthusiasm just as the opponents should probably temper their opposition. I think that's probably going to continue to be the case going forward. You have some changing factors, um, you know, the, this this fight or this political fight, if you will, between um, electric vehicles and, and, and liquid fuels. Um, it, it might create some frenemies that have taken opposite positions on, on things like the renewable fuel standard in the past to help kind of open up feedstock markets and, and other things to to make it possible going forward. But there, there are definitely some headwinds, but, you know, you also have tailwinds too. You know, that, that push for total electrification by environmental NGOs and, and others, um, that's a good question mark as to what this looks like going forward. And then going back to, to agriculture, there have been a lot of announcements on regenerative agriculture and kind of partnerships that, that haven't existed in the past. And it's, um, it's something I'd really keep an eye on. It's, uh, it's really exciting. There are a lot of opportunities to really develop that stacked incentive part of the equation for the value of a renewable diesel gallon going forward. Things like no-till, um, no-till practices and others uh, in, you know, pick your, pick your part of, um, of the U.S. and elsewhere that um, are going to lower carbon intensity and produce other benefits as well. Um, I know there have been some discussions concerning water quality trading. So some of these practices might lead to enhanced water quality. So you might be able to get things, and I'm just speculating here, you might be able to to bring in additional credits to your bundle of environmental attributes. Um, I saw a couple of projects that uh, have created um, habitat for um, monarch butterflies and they were generating value, local value for it. Uh, so there, there's just a lot of really cool things that people can experiment with and, and figure out how to extract as much value as possible. Yeah, and I think it's interesting that we didn't really touch on it in the technology side, but I always think that, and it's kind of my, my own personal view on hydrogen as well, is there are huge incentives here, as you kind of alluded to, for ag to come together with the traditional hydrocarbon industry because actually they already have the pre-existing technology, the facilities, the the supply chains to get this fuel to market. Even the renewable diesel itself is, uh, we didn't cover it, but is co-processed alongside other hydrocarbon chemicals right you you it's um you know it, it fits it meshes very well with existing infrastructure 
that you can see you know this being a even at a just a political lobbying level a really important industry for the refiners to focus on as their solution or part of their solution in energy transition yeah certainly but everybody's got a different business model and interest and you know those conversations are definitely going to be very difficult but i think uh, in my personal opinion i i suspect more cooperation going forward well it's been a fascinating discussion i've really enjoyed it i think you've given a really good overview of renewable diesel i think we've probably got more 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 episodes centered on this area because i think it is you know it's a real hot topic at the moment it's something that people are at the very least wanting to understand and gearing up for and there's i think there's just huge trading opportunities around this you know very broad feedstock suite that you can use as well as the renewable diesel itself being what you know what would appear to be a potentially excellent fuel so jw thanks very much for your time really appreciate your time enjoyed the chat thank you for listening if you enjoyed this episode and want to support the show, please give us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. To find out more about HC Insider and Human Capital, a search firm dedicated to the commodities sector, go to www.hcinsider.global, where you'll find more original content on the commodities sector and more details on our offering as a search firm and our locations around the world. Thanks again for listening.